John chapter 6, verses 52 to 59. I'll read these out now. This is God's word. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is God's word. A reminder as we come to this, we're still in chapter 6, which is this long discourse on the bread of life, where Jesus is, after he he performs the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, he is then talking to the crowds who are following him because they've seen a great sign and he is beginning to draw a much clearer line in the sand to distinguish between true and false followers. There's a whole host of people who are coming to him for all sorts of reasons, some valid, some with the wrong reasons. And Jesus is distinguishing between these people as he increases the pressure upon them to understand what is required to truly come to him, as opposed to those who come to him, but who do not truly trust in him as the son of God. Jesus does not entrust himself to those people. So he is uh, going further into this theme where it's going to be much clearer who is his true follower and who is not. Even by the end of chapter 6 that we will get to next week, we will see that many disciples, after they hear this, they say to him, this is a harsh saying. This is a hard saying. Who can understand this? And then they leave him and they no longer walk with him. And Jesus knew exactly who those would be. Now, just some housekeeping before we get into this passage. This passage Uh, has caused a lot of controversy throughout the history of biblical interpretation uh, because of the Lord's Supper that we take every week and because of the language that seems to insinuate um, a particular aspect of the Lord's Supper where uh, some believe in a a thing, a little doctrine called transubstantiation, which um, is basically just meaning that the bread and the, the wine are transformed into Um, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that it is literally there where you see sometimes in a a Roman Catholic background where they have the mass and they believe that Christ is literally being uh, crucified again. It's, It's his body and blood. Now, we won't go into the details of that, but just as this part of housekeeping to say, I believe we should see this passage here where Jesus talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, not as a passage which is pointing to the Lord's Supper, but as a passage that is pointing the same direction as the Lord's Supper. 
It is pointing toward the life, death and resurrection of Christ our Saviour. Just as when we take the Lord's Supper, it is pointing us toward Christ. We do not believe that the bread and the cup are literally being transformed and literally become. There is certainly an element of Christ being present in the Lord's Supper, but we believe that it is a symbolic meal that is pointing us a meal of remembrance to remember the death and resurrection of Christ. This passage in a similar way is pointing us toward that direction. So it's not pointing us to the Lord's Supper, which is why we won't be talking about that today. It's pointing us the same direction as the Lord's Supper, which is to Christ, namely our participation in him as a result of his death and resurrection in our place. So with that housekeeping aside, let's remind ourselves of the context here. Throughout chapter 6, Jesus is describing what is required to truly come to him and then how someone truly comes to him. And to truly come to him, we see, remember verse uh, 29 and 30, where the uh, Jews come to him and they say, well, what work must we be doing? And Jesus says, well, here's the work you need to do. Believe in me. Believe in me as the son whom the father has sent. That is what is required to truly come to him. We believe in him as the son of God. And to believe in him is to see him as the bread of life. That's the overarching theme of this passage. He is revealing himself as bread from heaven. So to believe in Jesus is to see him as the bread of life. Now to see Jesus as the bread of life is to see him as the source and sustainer of life. That's what it is to see him as the bread of life. Just as bread is nourishment for our physical bodies, so Christ is nourishment for our soul, spiritual nourishment for our soul. So just as bread is nourishment for the physical body, so Christ is nourishment for our souls. But contrary to bread being physical nourishment for our bodies, you can have alternatives to bread. You can, even if you want to keep a heavy carb diet, you can eat some pasta or something like that. There are plenty of other alternatives to bread to have nourishment. There is no other alternative to Christ for our spiritual nourishment that our souls crave. There is no other alternative. Christ alone is the nourishment for our souls. Jesus is the sole provision for our souls, the S-O-L-E provision for our S-O-U-L, for our soul. So with every statement in this discourse here, Jesus is increasing the pressure upon the hearers to come to grips with this reality, to face the reality that to believe in him is to see him as the bread of life, which is to see him as the sole provision for their souls at the exclusion of everything else. They must see that he alone is the source and sustainer of life. And anyone who desires to truly come to him must face this reality. And the way that Jesus increases the pressure upon the hearers is to use language that is quite confronting. So read in our passage from verse 53, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This is confronting language. Jesus is picking up where We left off last week in verse 51, where he says, I am the living bread 
that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So this is him transitioning, starting to talk, starting to increase the pressure upon them to realize that his flesh is bread of life in the sense that he is the sacrifice. He is the sole provision in order to atone for the deep-seated problem in all of humanity. This is him in the flesh. In simple terms, Jesus is saying here, you must partake of that which I am giving you and what I am giving you is my very self in the flesh. That's what he's saying. And you must eat and drink of what I am giving to you. And notice in verse 53, Jesus makes it conditional. He actually says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. This is non-negotiable. There's no other way around this to get life. There's no alternative. You have to eat the flesh. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Or you have no life in you. You must partake of this fully to have life. Now, what is this saying? What is this really saying? Given that we cannot literally eat and drink of the flesh and blood of Christ. For us now, we know Jesus is physically seated at the right hand of the Father in the spiritual realms. We are not literally, in a sense, eating and drinking of his flesh and blood. So what does Jesus mean here as he says that the disciples and to us that we must eat and drink his flesh and blood? There are two primary points that I want to draw out today before we then look at practical applications. Two primary points that we see from this passage. Number one, what this is saying is that for life to come, there must be a sacrifice. For the life that we all need, there must be a sacrifice. So Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You're dead. You're spiritually dead. The language here is reminiscent of sacrifices where flesh was given and blood was shed. Very common to a Jewish understanding. Jesus is alluding to the fact that for life to come, flesh must be sacrificed and blood must be shed. That's how, that's the only way life is going to come. Now to the Jews hearing this, they're no strangers to this language. They're very used to flesh being sacrificed and blood being shed. This was part of their life. This was fundamental to Jewish life. But there are two significant aspects of what Jesus is saying here that make this very shocking to the Jews. And the two aspects is firstly, that he is the sacrifice. Jews, of course, were familiar with animal sacrifices. Jesus is saying, I am. You have to eat my flesh, not the flesh of a blood uh, of a bull or a goat. You're actually eating my flesh. He is the sacrifice, not an animal. The God man, Jesus, is the sacrifice. That's the first reason why it's so shocking. The second and probably a bit more significant reason why this is so shocking to the Jews is that Jesus is saying they must drink the blood. Now, consuming blood was forbidden under the old covenant. You weren't supposed to do that. We think of passages like Leviticus 17 in verse 11. The law is quite clear to say you must not drink the blood from the flesh that is sacrificed because that is where the life is. 
And this comes all the way back from Genesis 9, where after Noah left the ark, one of the first things God says to him is that he must not eat flesh with its blood, because in the blood is the life. It's a symbol of sacred life. And then God roots this even deeper into the sacredness of life because he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image, which is him saying you must not shed blood of anyone unnecessarily because God made him in his own image. Likewise, for a sacrifice, do not eat the blood of that sacrifice because the the blood is a symbol of life. We know this intuitively. If you lose enough blood, you're going to die. We need blood physically. This was also symbolic of this idea that blood is very precious. The life is actually in the blood. So they were forbidden from consuming the blood. And now Jesus comes along and he says, for you to have life, you have to drink my blood. You have to drink this blood. That's quite confronting. Jesus is saying, my own flesh is the sacrifice. So you have to eat my flesh. A sacrifice has to happen. You have to eat of this flesh. And then for the sacrifice to be efficient, you have to consume blood. You have to consume this blood. Just like that principle from the Old Testament that the blood was a picture of life, Jesus is saying, for the life that I'm giving to you, my blood has to be shed and you have to consume that blood. That's the only way new life will come. The life that I am giving will come at a great cost. It will be by my blood and you must consume that blood, which is another way of saying you must be completely washed in my blood. It is the only way to make you as white as snow in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So though that blood was forbidden under the old covenant to enter the new covenant, we must consume the blood in that sense. We must be washed in the blood which is what we will see today as we see Jose baptized going into the water is both a, a symbol of purification, but it's also this picture of the cleansing that comes only by the blood of Christ. We are made as white as snow. The blood of bulls and goats was never going to cleanse the Jews. So Jesus comes along and he says, you must consume this blood. It's the only way for life to come. Now, this is the first aspect of what Jesus is saying here. For life to come, there must be a sacrifice. Jesus is that sacrifice. His flesh and blood was the sacrifice for us to be cleansed. But to really comprehend and receive this sacrifice, there must be a response from the hearers. And here's where we see the second aspect. So the first is for life to come, there must be a sacrifice. Secondly, for life to come, we must fully partake of this sacrifice. We see this in the language here. This is the picture. Eating and drinking is to partake of the sacrifice. It's a a sign of intimacy, of deep fellowship, Now, we know we, of course, cannot partake of Christ's sacrifice in the sense of us contributing anything to us being made clean, to us atoning for our sins. We cannot partake of that in the sense of contributing to that. 
But the partaking here is synonymous with us fully coming to him as the son of God. This is the theme in chapter six. He is talking about what is required to truly come to him. So he starts to increase the pressure by saying, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. In another way, you must fully come to me. You must immerse yourselves in me at the exclusion of everything else. You must partake of me such that you are eating and drinking so that you may actually taste and see that I am good. There is a deep level of communion here, of allegiance to him. It's like Jesus saying, you must partake of me with such a ravenous desire or you have no share in me. That's what is required to truly come to him. This could be viewed along the same lines of what Jesus says elsewhere of the cost of discipleship. Passages like Luke in both chapter 12 and chapter 14, Jesus says things like, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is a huge level. Jesus is saying, you can't. You can't be my disciple if you view them at even the same level as me. Now, we know that we honor mother and fathers. We know that we love our wives. We cherish our spouses. But of course, what Jesus is saying here is that in comparison... To me, there is no comparison. You must come to me at the exclusion of everything else. You must come to Jesus at the exclusion of every other source of nourishment. You must come to him at the exclusion of every attempt to keep your life. You do not dip your toes in a bit of Christianity. You do not try it out. You jump into the deep end. You immerse yourself fully into the depths of knowing, serving and worshipping Jesus Christ or you have not partaken of him at all. That's it. That's the non-negotiable. You jump fully in. And to immerse yourself in Christ in this way is to relinquish every ounce of control. This is part of what is being Uh, asked of us here it is to relinquish every ounce of control to partake in jesus you must leave the world you must not cling to your life you must relinquish everything in order to come to him there is a a sermon i i came across a few weeks ago that's a very famous sermon by paris reedhead called 10 shekels and a shirt and i mentioned it to a few of you it's a great uh, sermon And he gives an example, this preacher, Paris Reed, had gives this example of where a man was coming to him and it seemed like the man was coming uh, to, to Jesus as a means to an end. So the man was a pastor of a church. He had a great church in, by worldly standards. He had a radio ministry. This is like 80 or 90 years ago, which was a big thing. And the man came to Paris Reedhead and said... Um, things are going really well for me, but I've heard that you could help me. I think that you could help me do more things for God. And Paris Reed had said it was like this man was coming up to a gas station and asking, you know, in his um, Cadillac, whatever, the best possible car you can think of in a really souped up car. And he comes to the attendant and says, fill it up with the best fuel possible the best fuel that will help me to do wonderful things for God. And, and Paris uh, said to this man, that's, that's the picture I'm getting here. And what needs to happen is that you have to actually relinquish 
your life. And he said, the, the, the picture is you're in this car, you're in this great car, you think you can do great things for God. And what needs to happen is you need to actually get over to the passenger seat. You need to get out of the driver's seat. And then he said, but I know that won't be enough. So you need to actually get into the back seat. And then he said, actually, that won't be enough. I know you, you're going to reach over and try and grab the steering wheel. What you need to do is get out of the car, take the keys out, give them to God, open the trunk, get in the trunk, shut the door, and then whisper through the keyhole, it's your car, God, fill it up with whatever you want, take me wherever you need, you're in control. And he said, that is what is required to come to to Christ. To be useful to God is to relinquish everything. It is to lay no claim of control. It is to completely relinquish every sense of control and entrust your life to Christ. This is what it is to partake of Christ. It is not only to relinquish every bit of your control, but it is to relish in his control. It is to be enraptured with the fact that he is in charge. He is in control and you live trusting him. So what Jesus is calling his disciples to here is to be immersed in him in this way, to fully partake of him. So we must firstly see that for life to come, a sacrifice has to occur. Jesus's flesh and blood is that sacrifice. That's the only way life could come. And then for us to partake of that sacrifice means that we must come to him as this sacrificial lamb, which is to fully partake of him at the exclusion of every other worldly attempt to satisfy our souls at the exclusion of everything else. That is what it is to partake of this sacrifice that Jesus is giving. He is the sole satisfaction for our souls. Now, not only is this the case when we first come to him in the sense of a one-time event, this is also the case in an ongoing way. And we see this as Jesus continues to describe what this looks like from verse 54. So you may notice that there's a different word used from verse 53 to then the rest of the passage when it talks about eating. So in verse 53, we have truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man. And then from the remainder of the passage, the word used is whoever feeds on me. Now, it's the same idea of eating and feeding, right? But there's a different translation, hopefully, in your Bibles, because they're different words. And not only are they different words, they're different tenses. So in verse 53, the tense is a uh, non-ongoing, completed tense. So eating in the sense of a one-time thing. You must eat of my flesh and drink my blood as a one-time thing. But then Jesus says in verse 54, whoever feeds... Now, this is not only a different word, but it's a different tense. It's what we call an ongoing tense where something is ongoing. It's an incomplete action. So the language is very much whoever continues to feed on me, whoever continues to drink of me. That's what's happening here. So there is a difference. There is, of course, that one-time meal where we eat and drink of Christ as we trust in him as the sacrificial lamb, where he lives the life that we should have lived, where he dies our death and we trust in him and we eat 
of him and we are washed in his blood. And that is a one-time event. In that moment, we are declared righteous. We are justified by faith in Christ as the Son of God. But that one-time meal then sets believers on a road or a journey of ongoing feeding of that meal. There is both a completed and then an incomplete aspect of this. As Jesus talks from verse 54, he is talking about the incomplete. He's talking about the ongoing feeding of him. Now, the picture that we have here, the picture that we should see as we think about this ongoing feeding is that we are called to see Christ as the portion for the rest of our lives rather than a portion. He is the portion, not a portion. He is not a portion amongst other portions. There are many professing Christians who treat their life like a salad bar. Sure, Christ may look like a delicious portion, but there's other portions that they go to. So when Christ doesn't feel all that satisfying, they turn to some self-help therapy for their sense of satisfaction. Or when Christ doesn't feel like a refuge, then we might turn to binging eight hours of some TV series in some sort of form of escapism as a bit of a refuge. This is where other things become a portion amongst Christ. Now, Christ is not a portion in the salad bar of life. He is the salad bar, you might say. He is everything. He is the portion. He is our source of satisfaction, both in that one-time meal and then in our ongoing feasting upon Him. He is the sole nourishment for our souls. We see these themes woven throughout the Old Testament, this idea of Christ as the portion or Yahweh as the portion. We see this in the psalmist, where in Psalm 73, the psalmist says, Though my flesh and my heart may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My portion. What's that saying? It's, it's saying that even if my flesh and my heart fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion. He's my everything. He's my portion. He's not a portion amongst other things. He is my portion. I'm not going anywhere else other than to him. We see this in Jeremiah in Lamentations 3, that very famous passage of great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah says in verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is my portion. He's my everything. I'm feasting upon him. Therefore, my hope, that which I long for, is only ever directed toward him. When it is not, that's because I've forgotten that he's my portion. He is my portion. I'm only ever going to him. Therefore, our hope is directed toward him. Now, to use a New Testament example, we see this so tangibly in the story of Mary and Martha. The, the very famous story where Jesus comes to Mary and Martha's house and Martha is uh, serving. She's distracted by much serving, we read. And, and what's Mary doing? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And all of us could totally understand Martha's frustration. If someone has come, it's a big event, things need to get done... And Mary is just sitting at the feet. It looks like she's wasting her time or it looks like she's not being productive. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. 
and Martha is serving and she says to the Lord, Lord, don't you care? I'm doing all of these things and Mary's just sitting there. And what is the language that Jesus uses? I'm not sure we see this in every English translation, but the language is where Jesus says, Martha, you are anxious about much, but there's one thing that you need. There's only one thing that you need right now. And he says, Mary has chosen the good portion. It's literally the language there. She has chosen the good portion, that which will never be taken from her. He says, that portion that Mary has chosen is her portion and it's never going to be taken from her. That's what's most important for you, Martha. Now, Jesus, of course, knows that serving is not bad. He came to serve. He calls us to serve. Serving is a good thing, just like there are other things in our life that are good things. So when I am talking about Christ being the sole portion for our lives, I'm not calling us to some monastic life where we lock ourselves up in our prayer closet 24 hours a day. We're not being called to that, but there is something we are being called to. There is a principle here. This principle that we see from Mary's posture of just treasuring Christ. In that moment, she is in a sense eating and drinking of Christ as she is sitting at his feet treasuring him she has worked out that he is her portion she's not going anywhere else for us there must be a regular posture in our lives that looks like this feasting posture of mary that then shapes the rest of your life there must be an intentional posture an intentional time of feasting upon the lord that then shapes the rest of your lives. Intentional practices of treasuring Christ, which then shape the rest of our lives to be full of devotion. So let me give a practical example of this. So we've had the, the uh, theology and the theory of Jesus calling us to eat of his flesh and drink his blood. He is saying that for life to come, there must be a sacrifice. And for you to have that life, you must fully partake of me at the exclusion of everything else. And then we've seen this posture of treasuring Christ, of sitting at his feet. If I can give an example of what this might look like, just using a glasses analogy. Those here who wear glasses will know that you need to get the right prescription so that you can focus. If I was to take my glasses off now, I have terrible eyesight. You would all be very, very blurry. We need the right prescription for our lenses. Now, having intentional daily practices, which specifically help to reaffirm Christ as our portion, is like us refocusing or getting the right prescription for our lenses, for our outlook on life, for how we view things, whether we see true beauty and true glory, or whether we look at things that are really ugly and yet think they are beautiful. The difference will be whether we have intentional practices that refocus our lenses to see what is truly beautiful and glorious. When you get the right prescription for your lenses, you can both see that Christ is beautiful and you can also see everything else with the right 
perspective. Here is the thing. If you do not have intentional practices in your life, if you do not have intentional daily practices in your life, which are specifically there to reaffirm that Christ is your whole portion. So I don't just mean uh, a casual Bible plan, but I mean practices that are there to intentionally reaffirm Christ as your whole portion If you do not have that, then your vision for beauty and majesty becomes really clouded, really unclear. You become attracted to things which are quite ugly. I remember one time I was at the airport and I should have been wearing glasses. I didn't wear glasses. I was with a friend and I thought I could see, I was picking up my mum from the airport and I thought I could see uh, my mum coming down. I hadn't seen her for a long time, so I was very happy to see her. And I said to my friend, oh, there's my mum lovely gray hair and she was wondering where and long story short turned out to be a very old man and I I was about to go up and embrace him and it's a comical story but the reality is that's what we do with things in this life where we do not have our lenses focused to what is beautiful we think we're looking to something that we know and all of a sudden it's a strange old man it's something really uh, ugly of this world now How do you make sure you have the right prescription for your lenses? Just before I finish with these practical examples, if I can just give a bit of a precursor or a reminder for us, there is a great danger of us missing the importance of simple, ordinary means of grace in the life of the follower of Jesus because we do not understand the significance of why we do them. We know intuitively, even the most immature Christian knows, they should probably be reading their Bible, they should probably be praying, they should probably be gathering with a few people. We know, and these are part of what we call ordinary means of grace, as in those things that God has appointed for us to walk in so that we would be in fellowship with Him and so that we would know Him more deeply as a means of grace. They are like him gifting things to us. The ordinary means of grace are things like reading the word of God, spending time in prayer, gathering with God's people. These are what we call ordinary means of grace. But in one sense, there's nothing all that ordinary about them actually, because ordinary means of grace really are quite extraordinary when we realize why we are doing them. They are extraordinary in the sense of time in God's word is actually time fellowshipping with the God of heaven and earth, the God who created everything. There's a spiritual activity happening there. When we pray, there is spiritual warfare happening at those times. There is an incredible reality to what we do as we walk in these simple, ordinary means of grace that is actually extraordinary. They are the means by which we grow in our intimacy with the Lord. They are the means by which we experience a deeper communion with Him, where we get a foretaste of the glory that awaits for us in these means of grace It is extraordinary because they deepen our intimacy and communion with the living God. So as we look at just these two principles, these two applications to finish of how we sticking with the refocusing our lens analogy, as we look at these, be very careful to view these with the understanding that these are here to increase our intimacy with the Lord. 
They are here to increase our sense of communion with him. They are how we come to know, serve and worship the living God. So the first application here to make sure that we have the right lenses so that we can see what is truly beautiful and glorious and so that we can feast upon Christ is that we must realize that daily we have to refocus our lenses through daily word and prayer. There's a reason why the psalmist always talks about meditating day and night. It's, it's not an optional thing. It ought not to be an optional thing. It is to be a daily practice. And when we daily come to word and prayer, we refocus our lenses so that we can see what is true and what is beautiful. This is part of what Jesus is calling us to. Notice in verse 55, he says, For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He's saying this is true nourishment. You're looking to things that are false. You're looking to lies. I am what is true. I am the way, the truth and the life. As we daily come through word and prayer, we refocus our lenses so that they have the right perspective, not only to see what is beautiful and glorious, but also to rightly see what is very ugly about this world. That's how we refocus our lenses and we see things in the right perspective because there are things like leisure activities, like watching a movie with friends or kicking a soccer ball, these sorts of things that are sometimes very enjoyable and helpful things to do and we can do them to the glory of God. But the safeguard for us, we will only ever know that we are doing them to the glory of God. We will only ever feel comfortable in them if we know we have the right lenses. If we know we are looking at them through the right lens and the only way for us to look at them through the right lens is to refocus our lenses daily in word and prayer. Now, that's the first application. The second application, very linked to that, sticking with the glasses analogy, is that we have to beware of things that smudge your lenses. So we must both positively have practices in our lives where we are reaffirming that Christ is our portion. And in this sense, we constantly have the right prescription. We have the right lenses. But the thing is, it won't matter if we have the right prescription, if we are then allowing things of this world to smudge our glasses. And I am very used to, as a parent of Lewis, things smudging glasses. It doesn't matter if I have the right prescription. If Lewis has got his chubby fingers on my glasses, they are completely ruined. I can't see anything. Now, there are things of this world that smudge our glasses, our spiritual glasses. There are many things of this world that blur our focus for what is good and what is beautiful. And therefore, we have to not only positively refocus our lenses through daily word and prayer, but we have to negatively be aware of these things that smudge our glasses. There are seemingly innocent, quote unquote, things which have the potential to smudge our spiritual lenses and take our focus off of Christ. And rather than giving a whole list of them, because this is never black and white, let me give a quote from Susanna Wesley, John Wesley's mum, when he asked her for a definition of sin. And she said to him, whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, 
whatever takes off your relish for spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem in itself. What this is saying is whatever obscures what is true and what is beautiful, whatever weakens your reason, whatever makes you feel spiritually flabby in a sense, unable to determine what is good and what is wrong, whatever is actually corrupting your conscience, which is our ability to know what is right and what is wrong. There are all of these things that have the potential to just weaken that, to corrode it. And we must be aware of those things in a critical way. This is the great danger of our society. We are often so undercritical. We are just accepting of everything in the spirit of tolerance. We give ourselves to all sorts of things. There are many things that we shouldn't tolerate in our lives. There are many things that we should be critical of, things that have the potential to smudge our lenses and inhibit us from daily coming to Christ as a source of our satisfaction. Now, these are two very simple applications, which I'm sure you could add to them. We have to daily come to word and prayer, and I might add regularly gathering with God's people as a way that we are constantly refocusing our lenses. And we must also be aware of things in our life which smudge our lenses, which prevent us from seeing what is true and what is beautiful. If that is not happening, if we are not refocusing our lenses, and if we are giving ourselves to things which smudge our glasses, then we can't continue this ongoing feeding of Christ. We're going to be feeding upon something else. The only way for us to come continuously, this ongoing meal where we are tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, is if we are keeping these ordinary means of grace, these really tangible and practical means by which we can cut things out of our lives and add things into, and it's all working towards increasing our intimacy with the Lord. It's all working towards us jumping deeper into this ocean of knowing, serving, and worshiping Jesus Christ. Christ. This is what it is to eat and drink of Christ, to have these practices which reinforce that reality that Christ is our portion. We, we live in this world where everything is trying to grab our attention to say, I'm your portion. Come have another holiday. Come have this new product, whatever it may be. We're constantly being shaped by these things. We must reshape ourselves so that we're refocusing our lenses to daily come to Christ as our portion, to see his sacrificial life, death, and resurrection in our place, to see that the only way for life to come was through sacrifice. The only way for us to partake of that is to relinquish everything and relish in him. So Christ is not a portion. He is the portion. This is what he is calling us to. And we will see next week as we study the passage that there are many who, after hearing this, they say, this is too much for us. We're not in anymore. You want this level of commitment? That's not for me. And we should take today as a reminder for ourselves to ask ourselves, are we ready for this level of commitment? Are we eating and drinking of Christ? Are we ready to, in an ongoing way, continue to press in and stir each other on so that we may together press in to Christ?